Hello and welcome to the Motor Racing Passion Podcast, brought to you by Breakthrough Health and Wellness. I'm Luke Blattman, along with Daniel Blattman and Brock Schaefer, and we're discussing today the recent Bathurst 12 Hour of 2022. The 12 Hour is our favourite Australian race of the year for all of us, and we had an awesome couple of days up there camping. Daniel and Brock have been to all of the GT3 12 Hours since 2011. Adam's worked on a number of cars there over the years and spectated at a number of them. And the only one I've missed since 2012 has been 2016. And after we all missed 2021, how did we all feel about getting back there? Did you miss it as much as you thought, Daniel? Yes, to be fair. I was pretty, I went in fairly, not expecting a heap, to be honest. You know, usually go through Christmas, go through the early part of January, and that's all you're thinking about is that race. I can't say I had the same feelings going into May, especially with all the stilted build-up to it. But, um, yeah, no, driving in the gates and um, setting up in the campgrounds and, you know, watching the cars roll out on Friday, it's, um, yeah, no, it was, um, I won't say just like previous times because it wasn't 45 degrees, but, um, but no, it was, um, yeah, it was great to have it back. I missed it more than I thought I did. And like Daniel, I went in, you know, excited but cautious of a very small uh, entry list. But as soon as I got there, the excitement levels were just as high as normal. And uh, once again, it just it just never lets us down. It's great. Obviously, it's always usually in February, so it's always sort of the first race we see every year. So sort of you spend Christmas, New Year, just looking forward to getting there, and then. I felt, and obviously we missed it last year. I remember in the usual weekend in 2021, we we all spent the weekend Bathurst had usually be on, saying that we were watching old ones. And then um, the same thing happened this year. And by the time it rolled around to May, I actually, given all the other racing that's on, it sort of crept up in a way, and sort of all of a sudden it was like, oh, geez, it's Bathurst week. But but what once you get back up there and you see the people you normally see in the campground and everything. It it almost felt like it hadn't been two years in some ways because everyone just fell back into the same conversations and the same fun. I just remember on on the on the Friday when it was the first uh, the first twelve hour session and the first car came around and I think it was the Sun Energy car was the first car that came past. The, the same feelings come back just like this is awesome. This is I'm glad I'm here. We wouldn't have missed it for the world. Well, like all of us know that the race will be back to full strength in 2023 and all of us can't wait to get back up there. But for this year, sort of the main talking point leading into the weekend was the entry list with only 20 starters. And if if we focus on the GD3 part of the entry list to start with, uh, was the criticism warranted? For mine, I was actually pretty relieved plus slash excited that there were 15 GT3 cars there. I was thinking we might have been looking at, you know, somewhere between six to ten. So when I saw 15 arrive on the entry list, I was actually I was pretty enthused. What I guess for mine where the criticism was um, valid was just the lack of diversity amongst those 15 cars. I think off the quick top of my head, it was six Audis. No, yes, seven Audis, six. Mercedes, one Porsche and one um, Lambo. And to be fair, there's more diversity in a liberal front bench than um, than that. So that was uh, that was pretty disappointing. 
Um, but I guess it shows you the strength of those two customer programs in Australia and obviously shows you there's some work to be done there. But so, yeah, 15 GT3 cars I thought was pretty pretty decent, but just the lack of diversity within that was, um, I think, a fair critique um, of what rolled up. Yeah, I think 15 was a great number, given given there was only one international car in amongst that. And the, the quality was really good too. Like, there was almost almost 10 of those you could have seen as uh, race-winning cars, given the drivers that were uh, that were in them. Yeah, and I think I think what what stood out was um, and over the weekend was obviously the the strength of or the relative strength of some of the um, AMs in the in those cars as well. Um, Schumacher and Yasser Shahin really I guess stood out in terms of across those those AM drivers um, as well. And you know the Prince held his own, and actually the um, Craft Bamboo driver. As well, which his name just escapes the um C. C. Yeah, that was it. He he was very solid too, especially near the end, or that that afternoon stint. So that was um yeah, like that that was that worked out pretty well um as well, which was good and, and well not to understate Kenny Habal, but um I guess we'd seen a lot of his exploits in that race since 2018. So um so it was no surprise to see him pretty consistent. Yeah, I think it was good. Um, I think it was the best they could do. Again, like Adam, uh, sorry, like Daniel and yourself, I was surprised to see 15 cars with only one international entry because I I had doubts that they'd be able to get more than 10 Australian-based cars there. So, you know, good effort not only from the organisers but the competitors. And as well, they put in a huge effort to not lose any cars in the lead-up to the race. You know, there was a few Audis out there mismatch body panels and whatnot so yeah given the circumstances they did a great job there were for sure lols throughout the race as you'd expect with that many cars it wasn't as exciting as previous races but i can't complain i feel like we've got you know we all get our money's worth it's a great race great day really good effort from everyone i'm just saying as well i was and obviously it's very easy to spend other people's money but um two entries that surprised me that didn't show up there, considering the pro-am nature of it and the relatively weak um, field, was I would have thought the Quins would have um, teamed up Clark and Tony with uh, you know with a gun. And as equally, while I'm no big fans of these two, I'm surprised Paul and um, what, what, whatever his son's name is didn't um, roll up as well, given the um, you know lot of cross-class racing that they've done at this event but also they're currently doing through Transams and the Konica Minolta series and things like that as well so I would have thought that was kind of a perfect perfect kind of event so I was surprised they didn't jump in because both of them would have been realistically competitive as well. Paul and Nash Morris do you mean? Sorry yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, anyway it's 2022 what's the Konica Minolta series? The, the Fujitsu um, series. The Fujitsu <laughs> series yes. That, the Holden developed a whole. To be honest, no one watches that shit. So, well, I watch it. You do not. You tell me you do not watch that. I do. It's good. Why not? You got to support Australian motorsport, mate. We can support that by coming to the TCR event. Yeah. Look, TCR's not for me. So I'll watch the Super Two, and and I don't mind a bit of Morris in my life. I'll watch that. You go watch the TCRs then. Well, it was it was Brock Feeney's Super Two um, exploits that you know gave him the experience to 
handle the opening stint in the uh, man filter Mercedes. I was surprised he got thrown the keys. I would have thought Shane Van Gisbergen would have opened up, but um, he held himself pretty well during that stint, that opening stint. Two stints, actually. You don't land that drive in supercars if you're an idiot. So I don't think he was ever in doubt. He was always going to do a pretty good job. Well, if you believed um, what Garth Sanders said in the commentary, he, he pretty much made out no one wants to do the opening stint. So Van Gisbergen probably just pulled rank <laughs> and said, you're the rookie, you can do it. We probably just want to sleep in. No one wants to yeah. get up at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> Except us. Well, I don't want to, I just have to, because you're running around like a headless chicken going, come on, everyone, get up, get up. <laughs> Well, you were the one who didn't want to go to bed. Of course I didn't want to go to bed. <laughs> I had a, I'd had a rubbish week and I just needed to, to relax for a bit with a few bourbons and talk about my feelings. Uh, so what, why do we think there wasn't more makes in the GT3 field? MPC are the, like, they just do Audis pretty much, I believe. Like, there's just so many customer cars they service. so. There was always going to be a ton of Audis. There always is. But does that does this perhaps show up that the um, customer base for other GT3 cars in Australia or the customer setup aren't what they could be? I, yeah, I think that's fair because I think the Audi customer sport program is obviously the benchmark there as well. And yeah, I think yeah, I think especially for 12 hour, like you see more diversity uh, in the GT series. But I think to go and do 12 hours as good as the Groves did and as good as Adrian Dietz's team with Wall Racing did, you can see the difference between having international manufacturer engineers, um, spare parts, spare cars, all that that comes with that customer program. And, yeah, Audi's out in front and Mercedes is not too far behind, but there's not much going on um, as well. And... While we're throwing around critiques as well, I think Porsche Australia's support of the event this year and the Groves was diabolical. Like we saw Audi, we saw Mercedes backing all those cars out front, but there was not much going on in the way of that Grove car or potentially Earl Bamba or even like imagine if you could have just grabbed a couple of the leading Carrera Cup cars like teams, drivers, put that together and have an outright crack, like in a Class A car, but utilising those. I would have thought that was a great opportunity to, um, you know, pick some low-hanging fruit that was available with this event. So I thought that was pretty weak from Porsche Australia's point of view. Well, G- GPX Martini Racing was originally announced to come over back when the event was supposed to be in um, March, then February. Uh, they, 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 they said they were going to come, along with Gruppa M in the Mercedes, but those two entries fell off once the race moved to May. Yeah. That, that that was probably one disappointment in terms of the lead up to the race in that announcements came out at the start of the year saying those two were going to enter. Like there was just nothing more said about them uh, once the race was moved. It was, it was, it was left to, there was an article on sports car 365 about a week out from the 12 hour that said that Porsche weren't going to have a, a factory presence and that GPX's involvement in the IGTC was going to start at Spa. Yeah. But, um, but I mean, in terms of transparency, like you would have thought someone should have put a press release out saying that they weren't going to attend. 
I know, because and like that in hindsight, that was the ridiculous thing. Once the event moved, they were never coming, but supporters of the event were just strung along by appearance like just damage control, which in the end just made it look more ridiculous. Um, you know, when it was evident they were never coming. So um, yeah, I don't, I don't think they treated the fan base with much uh, respect in that instance. Especially I was heartbroken. It was it was going to be the first Martini car on the um, grid at the 12 hours since the Mercedes in 2016. And uh, and that would, that would have been another Porsche for Brock, so... Mm. Do, you, do, you, do you guys share the same thought? That it's like there was a golden opportunity for Porsche Australia with multiple teams here to, you know, promote some of their Carrera Cup teams or drivers and have a crack at the outright? Or, as me and Brock were talking at... 3 p.m. on Sunday afternoon, a Sunday afternoon at the race, or just have a like an international car, like get the Groves to run it, but just parachute a few Porsche drivers in for a second Grove car. They've got the resources to run it, and um, you know, have a few Euros in one car and uh, the Aussies in the other. I agree, good, I, but still, someone has to pay for it, and like Porsche yeah, is going to pay Australia. for it. I think they've got some cash. I'm sure they have an absolute bucket load of cash, but I think they'd want they'd want someone with a car to fund it. You know, like if the Groves fund a second car, yeah, Porsche might send some more engineers, some more drivers out to to jump in it. But the Groves are still going to have to fund it. They just clearly they just weren't interested in doing that. Yeah, I just I, it's such I think it's a wasted wasted opportunity because you look at all those AMs in the um Carrera Cup as well. I was gonna say I would have thought you'd be able to get one interested in in running it, like Emery did in the Class B car. In the end, I just thought it was when the other two manufacturers still gave it a crack. I just thought that one was plainly obvious, and it. Uh, no, I agree. Didn't get support. It, it was it was unPorsche like, but look, given how many cars, I think there's like 24 cars in the N24, which is just a few weeks later. So. I don't know if that had something to do with it. I don't know the difference between Porsche Australia and Porsche internationally with their racing budgets and how it's all how it's all done. But let's give them a chance next year because normally Porsche do throw a few good entries in. And I'm hoping it's just a one-off because yeah. it's not in their character. Well, they they have been absolute jokes in Australian motorsport in terms of supporting GT racing. Well, I was going to say that. I was going to say that. Is it really surprising that Porsche Australia? had an indifference to the 12 hour because they've had an indifference to GT racing in Australia for decades. Even, even before they launched Carrera cup. I mean, they didn't have a great deal of involvement. I mean, it was nation's cup before then, but um, they've seemingly had that they, they've only wanted to concentrate on the Carrera cup and not much else. Do you, so, do you remember that time too, that they stopped and ordered the Contreras brothers who'd bought cars and had spent money racing Porsches from entering the Nations Cup round at Eastern Creek in 2004. Yeah. Mm. But back to the diversity in the GD3 class, it shows also that the fact like they like Techno was the McLaren customer a few years ago and um, uh, Stephen Richards was the BMW customer team that was supposed to, you know, that was supposed to be the dealers to get people driving the cars in the country in Australia. But there's just been no... The only customers who want their cars prepared are Audi and Mercedes. 
Mm. I'm not going to accept a Porsche bashing podcast, so we're just going to have to move on. (laughs) It's payback for the Nissan one. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Except I'm here to defend them. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, overall, I I thought the GT3 grid was fine. I mean, 15 15 GT3 cars in, in even 15 GT3 cars in a normal Bathurst 12 hour that that's not a bad lineup in terms of the grid. But the the big the big thing that got me from the this year's 12 hour was the lack of cars in the lower classes. Like what? Yeah, what that was really disappointing. It, and that's probably goes along a little bit with when we were just talking about, um, you know, what, why didn't people want to get together and run a Porsche in the GT3 class? Like, like what put off local teams entering cars in the lower classes? That was one of the biggest contrasts where we thought it'd be the other way around. We'd have limited GT3 cars padded out by lots of diverse invitational cars. There are only five invitational cars across what effectively three three different categories, Marks, GD2, and a Porsche Cup car, or two Porsche Cup cars. So, um, yeah. But to be honest, the organisers sowed their own seeds with that. From, what, 2017 onwards, they just put more and more rules in those invitational classes to try and narrow who entered, which was always going to, like, splash back in their face because... Regardless, the event's always going to go through strong times and weak times, and that invitational classes and all the uh, class and and the other cars, like the event needs them for its identity, but it also to have a um, sustainable grid. And they forced away so so many cars. You think of the Daytona teams who no longer race there, Peugeot invented cars before those beautiful Fiat's, but eventually they were just pushed out and i guess the reality is what we experienced a couple of sundays ago yeah i think all the excuses for the um small field that were put out in the media which is like that that was the best way for them to sell the small grid was that the international teams couldn't come there was no excuse for a 20 car grid given that there's the invitational class it's been there for years and I'd say, like you said, Daniel, it's a lot of the invitational class entrants have been either not felt the priority or have been felt unwanted in previous years. And the invitational class has dwindled over the last few years. And as you said, it's bit them this year because that should have been what formed the bulk of the grid. And and it would have added another interesting dimension to the race. But like... With 20 cars and five cars spread across three classes, there was no class battles. There was, do you know what I mean? There was nothing to kind of entertain you from, you know, from a um, outside of the outright race. And I think that's what the event needs and was missing. And it's obviously it's obviously something 12 hours specific because the the six hour had 70 entries earlier this year. So you know you you, you can't blame COVID for a lack of local entries. Yeah. It's it's something specific to the 12 hour that people didn't want to enter. And I mean, look, and they obviously tried, like supercars events obviously tried to fill the grid with invitational cars because we saw the invite put out to the Super 3, te- Super three teams. On that, right, why did you need to create their own class for them? Why, like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Their wow. invitational 
cars. They've always been allowed in an invitational car, you know, I mean, provided you meet all the lap time requirements and things like that. So that's what I didn't understand. It was like they spent years forcing all these people out through all these random regulations. And then rather than just open up the invitational class, they try and create a V8 touring car class. Which I, was, I just thought, like, just let them, like, do you know what I mean? I don't understand why it needed to be a standalone class within the race. It could have just been an invitational car. That's why I couldn't help but laugh a little bit then when none entered. Because I was like, why Why didn't we go after Trans Am cars? Why didn't we go after TCR cars? Why didn't we go, like, do you know what I mean? It was just weird that out of all the ones that, that was the um, specific class that was targeted. They Even there was no Gen 1 Mark cars, which is bizarre. Like, the Gen 1 Mark cars were built for that race. Yeah. And well, and obviously no GT4, which was a complete, like, it still baffled, baffles me, and it's such a waste. But um, that class is perfect for this event, but it just doesn't seem to... People like these cars here, too. Just people aren't racing them for whatever reason. I mean, it was just in general. It's like... Why didn't people with private Porsches want to enter? As we were saying before, there, mm. there's there, there's old GT3 cars, which you know aren't the latest ones, but I'm sure I'm sure if someone had an older Lambo or something like that, I'm sure that they'd have put them in there in the invitational class. And we're not for a second saying it's cheap and it's easy to no. do. We're not we're not like not obviously just saying yes. If you got a car, you just go out and race it. 12 hours it is expensive but it's just um you know I mean? for people who have the cars and they race them in other categories and you know you look at they do a prod sports three or four hour or numbers of privateer entries and things like that doing multiple driver endurance racing i just would have thought um a few may have banded together for this one so and it's a bit of a worry going forward then if like the event's going to be fine next year the internationals will be back there'll be say say you get 15 say 10 to 15 international gt3 cars come out next year add that to the 20 that ran this year that gives you a field of say 35 ish that, that's fine that's what we had in 2020 obviously you know we'd love a 55 car grid but um the, the 30 35s 35s all right but if they can only attract five non-gt3 cars this year are they effectively now hanging the future of the event on GD3 and international cars? Well, but I was going to say, they, like, that's why it was silly that it took this for them to realise, but I hope they've learnt the lesson now or, at, like, you know, aware that you can't, like, you can't have a race dependent on international cars when, you know, there's lots of health or geopolitical reasons of why, do you know what I mean, that's going to impact the ability for international cars to come all the way out to Australia on an annual basis. So that's for next year. If we just revert to, oh, it's fine, international cars will be back next year, then we're just setting ourselves up for, you know, a um, similar issue down the, down the right line. They need, like, there needs to be a foundation that can support this race year in, year out, regardless of what happens internationally. It's hard, like there's not a lot of money in this country and I think the health of Australian GT in general the last few years has shown that. So it's expensive. I think there is a lot of, um, I think it's hard, quite hard in that in the slower classes from what I've heard. It's 
it's really difficult to be in a, a slower class car around that in that race. That's uh, a bit of a car killer. And uh, I actually think it's more so than the regulations pushing him out. I think a lot of guys just choose not to take their pride and joy there because they can't afford to get fenced by a pro Euro guy, you know, halfway through the race, which has happened. So it is weird. It's definitely in a point where it's finding its speed again. I don't know where it's going to end. I understand what Daniel was saying. I just don't know how how achievable it is. Well, I think the 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 ones that stand out that were written out or like not written out, but obviously made it that difficult was the Daytona prototypes. So they were given these like even though they had a lap time that they had to drive to. On top of that, they were given air restrict air restrictions and other limitations that just made it pointless for them to run. And you think they supported the event? In 2013, I think it was the first first year um, that one ran, and to see that fall out, we always had those those cool random BMWs that um, um, was an Anthony Gilbert, I think, ran one for a while, and things like that. And they're the ones that you know make the race interesting um, and support it, and obviously, and and are willing to support it. Were lost to the event because some people wanted to have like a spa. 24 hours of 55 GT3 cars, which I I personally don't want that, and I, I don't think that's long-term sustainable for a race based so far out of Europe. Just one other thing too is like there was no doubt it was um well, in my opinion it was a it was a quality 20 car grid, and watching the TV coverage they they made it interesting on TV watching back the TV coverage. You, you don't you don't see any empty track. There's cars on screen the whole time, and there was enough the way the rules were in the race that it kept kept the race interesting. That the lead kept changing, positions kept changing, so it was it, it, it wasn't a bad race to watch on TV. But I mean, trackside they need more than 20 cars because we, as good as the racing was, we we also looked at a lot of blank tarmac, particularly after things like safety car periods, and also that with 15 GT3 cars they. They're running around at a similar pace, so it takes a lot for them to get spread out. Yeah, I think Shane summed it up after one of his stints, and he just said it was quite boring because there's not enough cars out there. But, look, they had to get it back on. I think having a 20-car grid was better than skipping the race for another year. So it's back on. Agreed, yeah. It was, it was a decent crowd considering let's just wait eight months for the next one, seven months, whatever it's, it is now. That was and, interesting, uh, interesting comments by Van Gisbergen when he said that as well, because I was told that if you have any feedback or critique the event, you're not a true fan. So I don't know where that sits for him um, as well. So it was good to hear his feedback. So the race this year, in terms of the uh, television coverage, it had an all-Australian commentary team. With um, Radio Le Mans took the feed, but they they didn't send any of their crew out, and there was a lot of praise for the commentary team in a lot of quarters. And in fact, some there's been some some things written basically saying that they don't think going forward that we that we did they didn't miss the international commentary team, and going forward perhaps we don't need them. Uh, what do you guys think? I'm going to get in first because Daniel's got his boxing gloves on. So I'm going to get him first. Um, I think the commentary was, was pretty good. 
considering uh, Gar's quite a good broadcaster. Um, I did miss the Radio Le Mans guys. Obviously, they commentate the internationals week in, week out. So it, it is good. I think it gives it a good international flavour. And it also probably makes it a bit easier to listen to for the Europeans that tune in to watch them because it's, you know, familiar voice, familiar sort of things going on. But I think considering, apart from Garth blowing his voice out, um, I think they did pretty good. And Richard Crowell, he, he does step up at the 12-hour. I, I do enjoy his, his commentary at the 12-hour. So for me, commentary team is good. So it, it was, like, it was fine, as Brock said. Like, it was more than more than capable more than um you know they commentated they delivered information it was yeah it was it was fine where where i did have some thoughts was and i especially felt it re-watching the first couple of stints it felt like three supercar guys selling a race to v8 supercar fans do you know what i mean like it obviously it was a local flavour with local commentators, but it didn't feel like they were commentating on or to sports car racing fans or international fans. It felt like a local broadcast for local people. And I feel like that's what's missing. And that's why as great as it was having Garth Tander, who's raced in the event, and that, that, is, a, that is a good insight. But that's why you need international commentators and people who know international endurance racing we we real or i felt we really missed that nuance um, of the experience sports car racing people that radio le mans bring and good on them but as much as chad nail and richard crowell and gartanda tried and did well that day like it is miles away from radio le mans who do it week in week out know the drivers know the cars and now have been coming to the event for almost 10 years. So I think for anyone to say that it was it was a better broadcast and um, there was no need to bring anyone back, I'm like, clearly there's an agenda behind that because that is so far from reality. It's not funny. I I think you, you, you could argue that in the last few years with the RLM commentary team, it's perhaps been maybe too internationally weighted. Like you had Hindhoff and Johnny Palmer in the main commentary box of Richard Crail, and then you had Shay Adams in the pits. That's usually Mark Beretta. So you know, I, I I can I can agree maybe it needs a bit bit more of a local balance, but also the whole race is sold as Australia's international enduro, and given it's it's a intercontinental GT Challenge round, I think it has to have international commentary or international commentators in the mix. Um, I, I think you need to hit the nail on the head. Yeah, I think that's a really good point you make, Luke. I think it is Australia's international race. That's what they advertise it as. Run on the international BOP, international car, international drivers. Like, yeah, bring back RLM for next year for sure. But considering yeah, it's an, they it's, did it. They're synonymous job. with the event now too. Do you know what I mean? Like the rise of the event domestically and internationally are tied with their involvement. So I think that's, you can't underestimate that. And one example that I think at least spoiled out for me was the commentators explained to the audience that in the 12 hour, it was a race against time. It wasn't a, like it wasn't a race counting laps. And I thought that type of 
cutting edge analysis for people who watch endurance racing 24 hours 12 hours nine hours etc i was like they were basically commentating to the lowest common denominator which they even said later on if you're used to watching the bathurst 1000 and i was like that for me that's where it missed the mark it, it was trying that's, to that's sell not the it. choice of the commentators like that's the choice of channel seven and the producers and obviously they've looked at it and gone we're going to have a local audience um it's going to be australian commentators a lot of them are going to be supercar fans so we're going to have to cater to them yeah well maybe it'd be fascinating to read the ratings but i i think next year and maybe as a one-off as we said it was fine like do you know what i mean it, it was a capable enough there was commentary and it went over some pictures but it it was fairly one-dimensional and when next year when the opportunity to have rlm back is yeah is a no-brainer i think from some of the commentary i've seen around it's pretty much guaranteed rlm will be a part of the mix again next year one, one advantage to having rlm involved is that they, they play the commentary across their radio show limited networks which has got a worldwide following like there's people who listen to that like it's a rate like it's their local radio station and they just listen to sports cars 24 7. in fairness they did carry they did carry it across the uh rs1 this year as well which was oh great. yeah 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 no no definitely but but presumably that's because they're coming back next year but if yes. but if you if like some have suggested that they didn't miss the international commentary and they didn't miss the the no RLM involvement, well then presumably if that was ever done away with, then you lose the race getting carried on their network. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. you'd have to think about that. But I mean, as an alternative, I mean, do, do, does it have to be RLM in terms of the international commentators? Because you've also got the, the SRO commentary team who commentate on all the GT World Challenge Europe rounds and the GT World Challenge Europe endurance rounds of um, David Addison and uh, John Watson. I, the, once again, they know endurance racing. They know the international cars, it's drivers, teams, cars. So they've got that nuance. Um, so I think that they, once again, would be fine. But I would go back to after 10 years, give or take now, I think, Radio Le Mans is kind of synonymous with the event as well. So I think yeah. that when people think of the event, they think of Radio Le Mans and vice versa. Yeah, I can agree with that. I guess but, if, if, if I wanted to wrong, draw... David Addison is an absolute legend, so I'd have him here in a heartbeat. Well, if I drew a really long bow, I could say that, you know, David Addison, he commentated on the Bathurst 24 hours for <laughs> Channel 7, and he did the um, Bahrain V8 supercar round for Channel 7 in... I think 2008, and John Watson did some commentary for Channel 9 in the late 90s and early 2000s at the Australian Grand Prix. So that's my that's my link to Australia there. <laughs> maybe the solution is a team Johnny of Palmer. Johnny Palmer, number one, Hindoff, David Addison, and and Waddy. All right, okay. Let, let's go one step further. Give, give me your dream Bathurst 12 hour commentary team for 2023. I think I, I, think I just did. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, 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 no. no you got to give me pit reporters too. In the in in the pits, um, uh, oh, I can't believe I've gone blank on his name. Um, he's from Radio Le Mans. Um, Nick Damon. Nick Damon. Nick Damon in the pits with 
Mark Parker Rowe. Johnston would be in the picture. <laughs> Parker Johnstone. Yeah, one of the great broadcasters. I um I w- I will concur. Like I I'd love Nick Damon to come to the twelve hour. Love Nick Damon to come to the twelve hour. How about you, Brock? Yeah, you gotta have Nick there for sure. Um, obviously Johnny Palmer. Oh, Daniel's gonna hate this. I would actually like to hear Scaife commentate the twelve hour. Yeah, <laughs> it's a big call, but I don't mind him. I'd go, I'd go Scaife, Richard Crowell, and Johnny Palmer with Nick Damon and Chad in the pits. That's actually an interesting point. Like, what? Why? Like, it's a Supercars Media produced television broadcast and neil crompton for instance was there this year why, why weren't crompton and scaife part of the commentary team crompton was hosted in 2020 but um scaife has scaife's never he raced there in the 2017 race but he's had he's had no um broadcast uh involvement it's in probably the event. a week off for them they're probably like thank god we don't have to you know they can actually watch the race rather than being cooped up in a commentary box the whole time they probably don't want point, to do it didn't they have a race the weekend after or something? Or maybe yeah. it the weekend after? Yeah, Winton. My commentary team, I would go Richard Crail's the voice of the race. So he's there. J- Johnny Palmer, I I agree. I, I, I like Johnny Palmer up there. I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring David Addison in as the third commentator. No, I don't mind John Hindhoff, but I do, I do quite like David Addison. Then in the pits, I, 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 ha- I have to agree. I have to go... Um, Nick Damon. If we're doing just like a like the A team, no no restrictions or anything. I'd I'd also like Ted Ted Kravitz. In the- <laughs> I've never heard Ted Kravitz. Oh no, actually I was going to say I'd never heard Ted Kravitz do anything outside F1, but he used to host the British Touring Car Championship telecasts with uh, Louise Goodman. And I'd also like um like James Taylor does a great job, but I'd love the King Michael Massey to to be the race director as well. I was going to say we we can void. I was going to say we because then we go car racing. We heard James Taylor's voice on the telecast so many times that he almost was part of the commentary team. But yeah, I think and I think to finish off my to finish off my pit lane team, I think yeah, I think I think Chad Nalen. He, he's he's quite good in the pit lane. He does lane. a good job, isn't he? Yeah, he does do a good job. We have he's, really... He's energetic, really, I'll give you. Yeah. We have really good broadcasters in this yeah. country. We probably take them for granted. They're, they're all really quite good. And then my final pit reporter. I could go totally off-piste. Well, are you going to put Mario go, Andretti in there? No, I'd go for... I always loved John Brady on the Bathurst telecast back in the day. But but if we're being realistic, Scomo. I'm, well, no, it's someone like Andrew Jones when he did it in V8s. Oh yeah, he was he was quite good in the pits. Tappy, so, so Tappy was good in the pits. Tappy Tappy was great in the commentary box. But that's a they're, they're, <laughs> I'm trying to keep it realistic. But I'd happily get John Tapp and John Brady into it. But okay, okay, my my my, my dream 2023 commentary team will go. David Addison, Richard Crail, Johnny Palmer, then in the pits, Nick Damon, Chad, Na- Chad Nalen, Andrew Jones, and ho- hosted by Mark Beretta, because I'll assume it's on Channel 7 again. Maybe they can drag Wilco up there, bring him out of retirement, and have him as the sidekick. 
What about Koshi? Koshi, no, no, no. I don't think he's got any interest. They did give him a fire suit in 2007, though, from memory, and he wore it on Sunrise. But that's getting very off track. So we'll get back on track in a minute. We'll take a quick break and be back shortly. Breakthrough Health and Wellness. The Breakthrough 60-Day Challenge combines a highly effective weight loss program and a high-end personal fitness experience without costly memberships. In a culture of flash workouts and going hard, Breakthrough have taken a more sustainable approach and developed the perfect program that will not only get you fit and healthy, but also help you shed stubborn weight that you thought was never going to budge. Breakthrough will offer new inspiration and goals that will lead to life changes you can easily maintain. Each week, Breakthrough offer interesting muscular endurance, strengthening and functional movement exercises with a training app that will rival any workout you have done at the gym. For more information, visit mybreakthrough.com.au. That's M-Y-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-U. And follow Breakthrough on Facebook and Instagram. Welcome back to the podcast. The sporting regulations for the 12-hour this year, do you think there were too many rules, particularly around the AM driving times and the compulsory pit stops? Well, the AM driver time, like, I don't have an issue with that. That's a pretty standard rule, do you know what I mean? Or AM or pro, like total number of hours and all that kind of thing, continuous hours. I think that's, that's fine. But, yeah, like, some of the rules were so convoluted. Like, no one likes the wave around rule, but you can kind of see why it was introduced for this year's event with such a weaker field. But within that then, to have all these sub-rules within that, that, you know, it can only happen between, what, hour three and hour nine, and it, it can be applied, but it's up to the race director's discretion. Like, who wrote these rules? Michael Massey? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, either have the rule or don't. Don't have, like all these kind of like gotcha kind of things within it i think that's where they went wrong so have the wave around but do the wave around for the whole race or don't do it at all so hopefully next year we won't do it at all but just saying that i i thought that was unnecessary to have all these like intricacies inside the rule as well so i think that was uh that was one that was unnecessary but hopefully the whole rule disappears next year but Brock one thing we will agree on the Australian specific rules of no weaving behind the safety car once it flicks its lights off like that can go in a bin because that has cost the race now so many issues because of these little like this is an international race run under SRO regulations we should take an international rule book in terms of what happens on track because that's like so difficult for drivers who come from all over the world to just do something completely different here and it, and it actually hurts the race like the number of years where we've had cars in contention taken out because they weaved down Conrad straight like it's it's ridiculous and the other one's the overlapping rule obviously Kenny a ball full on overtook someone which 
that's like not, not just someone <laughs> yeah multiple so that makes sense but um but yeah like peeing cars for overlapping like let's let's just go with what's standard in gt3 racing the world over so i, I yeah. think it, it almost is getting to the gets to the point where it stops being it takes away from the the motor race you know like you know when we're not going to allow the the lucky or the wave around but we're going to send you on a green flag the next lap so if track conditions are that bad why are we going green two minutes later and um at you know it is a motor race and at some point we have to go car racing and uh i guess that's why we need to bring the king you know just get uncle massey in there because because it is a car race daniel and, and that's what it we're is there. it is it's a car race not a lottery and that's the, right let's, let's that's, go that's, racing that's where um yeah so, uh, that was a good point that you made actually yeah i agree I think I think with regards to the race regulations, one of the things with the IGTC is that it's just supposed to be a collection of different races from different continents. I don't think the rules, uh, and I don't, I don't think Rattel even advocates that the rules have to be the same for all the events. They don't have to, but I think all they do is just catch people out and it ruins the race. So yeah. Oh, I agree with the, what you guys are saying, but I, I I don't think it's an SRO priority to get the rules in sync with um with the other ends. Although I say that I'm about to contradict myself because do you remember was it for I think 2019 the 12 hour organisers originally announced a bunch of rule changes which included maximum stint lengths of I think 65 minutes and com- compulsory timed pit stops. And there was such a backlash to it that they ended up dropping it before the race started. Yeah, but th- yeah, once again, equally, they're ridiculous rules wherever wherever you go. Yeah, but but I mean, there that those are SRO rules. So yeah. there's some silly rules on both sides. I, I guess we want to take a hybrid some of the <laughs> some of yeah. the Australian rules and mix them with some of the um some of the European rules. But I think obviously obviously the organisers felt that the only way to get the AMs to enter their cars, which is which in effect is what was required with the the majority customer focused um, bunch of entries in this year's race, that they had to design the rules to make them feel like that unless you had a big crash or a major mechanical failure, no one was ever going to be out of contention in the race because every time you every time there was a safety car, people got the lucky dogs. Um, the compulsory pit stops, well, the nine compulsory pit stops, meant that you know there was um, no one was going to lose time in the pits. So, and the and particularly other rules like an AM driver had to do a stint after one o'clock, was it, or midday? Just they the had second half of the race, second half of the race, yeah. Yeah, so they they obviously designed the rules, I guess, thinking that was the only way they'd get enough entries to. And try and entice the AMs to enter. I think on that wave around rule, my opinion, if you're going to have a 10 minute safety car because someone's in a gravel trap somewhere, if if it's a full call safety car for 10 minutes, you may as well do wave arounds. Like why not? I mean, if they're gonna, you know, if they eventually go to code 60s and slow slow zones like you know a lot of Europe does then sure, you don't get your lap back and it's just a pretty much a, a full-on endurance race. But if they're going to keep, you know, having these 
pause periods in the race every hour or so. Why 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 not get your lap back? There's, I don't see a problem with it. It it just makes you know makes the end of the race better. I guess my only thing is like, and I, I appreciate this year's uh this year's an event on its own. Like next year, we're we're all assuming it's going to be back to full pro lineups. They'll get rid of the amount of compulsory pit stops and minimum time in the pits. So, you know, th- this is just a general thought, but like to me, like one of the essential parts of an endurance race is good pit work and staying on the lead lap. Mandating how long you have to spend in the pits, how many times you have to come into the pits and allowing any time you lose a lap that the next safety gate can get them back. I just find that goes completely against the essence of endurance racing. Maybe they could do like I don't mind the idea of timed pit stops because these aren't especially this year they're not professional crews so they're not F1 crews you know there are just sort of you know mates of mates of mates and never done it before they're under big pressure so if they've got two minutes you know it's plenty of time to not stuff it up um, maybe they could do pit stop times based on stick length. Stint, stint length like they do in Nürburgring. Maybe that would be a better, more consistent way to do that. You can't fool it as much as, say, our Craft Bamboo did it. But, well, uh, they they basically made a mockery of the whole thing, didn't they? Yeah, which proves, you know, there's there's holes to be shot through it, and next year everyone will probably do that if that rule maintains. I don't mind, because <clears throat> to me, endurance racing shouldn't be won or lost by your pit crew. And, like, maybe that's because I'm not as old school as you guys. But I, I don't have a problem with, with mandatory pit stop lengths, personally. As long, as long as they're not ridiculous. Like, I'm, I don't disagree with you in terms of safety, and especially around this year's event. But as long as they're not, like, do you know what I mean? Like, say they're a minute or, do you know what I mean? A minute 20 or something. Sometimes when they're two and three minutes, it's it's ridiculous. So I think... I think in that sense, as long as they're manageable, I just don't like mandatory number of pit stops. Like, I think that's if you can... Yeah, I don't think you need a mandatory number. I agree with that. That's unnecessary. Yeah. I was like, that That was... And, and obviously, that's where Craft Bamboo jumped on. But it's like, yeah, the, the more rules you make, the more random ways people are going to come to try and get around them. So it's kind of like self-defeating in that way. You could just say if, like, if you're coming in to do four tyres and fuel or two tyres and fuel, it's, you know, a minute stop, and that's it. That's just not negotiable. But if you get a puncture, there's no time limit. If you're coming in to put some race tape on it, no time limit. For window net falls down, no time limit. But if it's at least two tyres and any fuel, it's two-minute stop, although that would probably stuff the race up at the end yeah. if someone did a splash and dash. I don't know. Get more. Yeah, less regulations the better. Obviously, from a safety and financial point of view, sometimes there needs to be some things around it. But um, but yeah, that's. I think next year should be a lot cleaner, straightforward race. Um, which you know is understandable because they can have a depth of grid that um you know can support that. I yeah I I just thought. The, the the amount of rules also it, it made the race very hard to follow on TV 
it like because it the, the running order just kept getting jumbled up in the early stages like all of a sudden different cars were leading and you were just like well how are they leading yeah like when the lambo led and yeah yeah it's just i mean it was it, it was what it was i guess i get maybe that's what they wanted to just to it, kept, it definitely kept you on your toes and it showed everyone was in a everyone was in with a chance anyway as we were saying it's unlikely the same rule book will get carried forward into 2023 what did we think of qualifying for this year's race and the late change from a shootout to the two 15 minute um five car sessions okay i i have a few points on this so i don't have an issue with that being the qualifying session if that's just how it was intended to be from the start i have an issue with the reason they gave for it which was they're struggling with tire warm-up Yet they started the race in freezing cold conditions and did two slow warm-up laps and were able to push quite comfortably and no one had any problems. So I thought that was a cop-out. Yeah, so I don't mind it, but the reason they gave for it was a cop-out, in my opinion. I fully agree. It was advertised as a top-10 shootout. And whilst the two top-five 10-minute, whatever it was, session was good to look at and obviously had a last gap pole winner. It's um, the reasons for making it seemed really haphazard and really strange. So, yeah, I'm agree with Brock. It's um, what happened on Sunday morning to be concerned about tyre warm-up on Sunday afternoon in relatively warm conditions. I, um, yeah, no, I really struggled with that. Because on that basis... They needed four warm-up laps at almost racing speed before they could start the race. So it was just bizarre. I thought what they replaced the shootout with, I thought I thought they, they were really exciting. To, we were watching them from Murray's, and they were quite exciting to sit there and watch. And, you know, the back and forth, particularly between Mostert and Van der Linde, that was really exciting. But, I mean, in reality, it, it was no real different to the earlier qualifying. Like, it's just, it's just cars doing a bunch of laps trying to set a time it wasn't the whole selling point of a shootout is that you get one chance the pressure is just to do one lap and there's no sort of crescendo in the fastest guy going out trying to set pole so i mean i can usually take or leave shootouts but i think in that sense i'd rather a shootout than what we had in reality it's just it's just another normal qualifying session with less cars on the road you're getting multiple chances to do to do hot laps part of me wonders if it was a little bit of sort of protection to potentially losing a car so obviously in qualifying they could take the time warp the tires and then push in the shootout if it was a little bit sort of loose on that one lap i wonder if they're looking at the grid and going we can't afford to lose a car and based on what happened in 2020 qualifying I wonder if they were a bit gun-shy and said, you know what, let's just can it, let them warm up their tyres so that we give it the best chance. Because if they lost three cars in that shootout, it would have been a disaster. So I, I wonder how much, you know, I wonder if we if we had a normal-sized grid, I suspect they may have still run the shootout, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I've, I mean, they were definitely... Um... They were definitely worried about losing cars. I mean, look what happened with the uh, with the Super Barn Audi. 
Um, in previous years, cars have been crashed and they haven't they haven't run, even though there's been spare cars sitting in the paddock. They've they've never turned laps in the race, and then defl- and and that that ruffled a few feathers. There were a lot of comments about replacement cars being being used, which I I I I had no problem actually. I think every, I think they should always if there's a spare car in the paddock and you crash it during practice, or I think you should be able to trot out a spare car if you've got one there. But yeah, no, there was there was definitely there was definitely a priority placed on getting all those twenty cars onto the start line. Then do, do you think they should keep that? that that sort of emphasis on getting all the entries to the start line going forward even even if there's a 45 car grid no i think once once qualifying's concluded that's it it's just part of your race but if you ride off a car at the start of quali and before the end of quali you're like or maybe within like an hour after quali you nominate a new car then i reckon you should be allowed to swap hey you paid your entry yeah, yeah. absolutely you should be allowed to what do you reckon, Daniel? Yeah, the more the merrier. Like, you've come all the way there, of course. I think, yeah, why would you try and force cars out, even with 45? Yeah, it makes no sense. So, yeah, if you've got a spare car, roll it out, start at the back, and, uh, yeah, there you go. But looking ahead to 2023, what do we want to see when we rock back up there next next year? Man, sorry. Grouper. More Porsches. GPX racing. No, I think ultimately, ultimately we want to see BMWs, we want to see Lamborghinis, we want to see McLarens, we want to see Audis, we want to see Mercedes, we want to, do you know what I mean? I think that's, obviously we won't see Bentleys, but never know, maybe we might see a private Bentley run, but um, yeah, just some diversity of cars and, you know, some strong international lineups and um, I assume it'll go back pro. Um, next year which will be good i don't provided it's adhered to and it's consistent across the field i don't mind a pro-am event um so i'm, I'm not absolutely tied to that um but just you know i mean it's great having the likes of stoltz uh angle bandalinda winky like yeah barker he, he was outstanding so like do you know what i mean just um yeah just that international flair if if I could have honestly one thing for that race next year, at least fifteen non GT three cars. Nice. Like that's what the race was built on. Like, you know, we had enough GT three cars this year. Like we just need fifteen GT fours, TCRs, invitationals, super three cars, whatever. Even some of the six hour cars like it used to be. Like that's what I would want. What would you want, Luke? Yeah, oh look, I'm I'm definitely the same with the lower class cars. They make the race, in my opinion. There's there's a, there's a good bunch of the fan base who just want GT3 cars or don't don't care that no lower class cars are there. But for me, the lower class cars help make the race, and I love seeing such a diversity in um in the type of cars that entered. I've got a one of my favourite photos I took from the 12 hour in 2013 was I was standing at Forest Elbow and I've got a Ferrari come up the inside of a of a of a Ford Falcon FPV and I think that just that summed up why I loved that race because yeah. what, you you couldn't get a bigger contrast to car so I mean I'll, I I'm I'm sure it'll be a multi-class race next year and I'm you know I'm sure you'll get a couple of marks enter a couple of Porsches 
the, I'm sure the, I'm sure the KTM. Maybe maybe we need to look at trying to get some more GT2 cars to enter alongside the KTM. If there's no interest in GT4, um, some people might be interested in driving the slightly quicker GT2 cars. Slightly quicker. That thing was an absolute rocket ship. <laughs> <laughs> and until it broke down right in front of us in the second yeah. hour. Yeah, I think it clipped the wall, but um, that was a probably yeah. fast car. The other thing I'm looking forward to, and obviously not saying we expect it for 2023, but hopefully moving in there, I would love to see it go back to a four-day event. So have some running on Thursday, and we have a Thursday night session. The thing is, a, a night practice is hard, though, given the time of year. If we just go back to 22 for a sec, that Friday night practice session was one of the highlights of the weekend. That was awesome. Electrifying. Watching the car. We, we sat at the chase for it and just watching it started in, it was still, a, the sun had just set or was just setting when they came out. And, and there was a red flag which helped it as well because that stopped the session and then they got back going again, and which meant it ran a little bit later into the dark still. And for probably the last 25 minutes of that session, it was pitch black. And it was co- it was cool to see a practice session as opposed to seeing them just at 5 a.m., um, 6 a.m. rather, running around in the dark. But I, I think to do a practice session like that, I mean, you'll have to run it at 8 o'clock in February to get any yeah, so, kind of dark so, running. So do it on the Thursday. Only, only started at like 1 or something. Run, yeah support cars or do your track sessions or your sponsor sessions or whatever you want to call it and so that way your marshals aren't doing a full day into the night yeah there's just like an afternoon session one till nine or whatever it is and uh yeah there you go that would that would be cool i think we should acknowledge there are a few things they they got really good this year like obviously that practice session was a big win I think starting the race an hour earlier was a big win. There are actually some decent gains this year, so good on the organisers and supercars for that. And good on them for going green Sunday morning too because I was not told they were going to do that. No one. No one thought, and the fog was worse in person than on TV. No one thought that race was going to start, and they did it. And all of the Australian drivers complained, and none of the European ones did. And full credit to James Taylor because we we witnessed something that I've never seen before. And just seeing those cars cutting through such heavy fog when it's pitch black is something I don't like probably no one's ever seen at that track ever. And probably and never was, see again that, anytime soon. That hour was just magical. So like full credit to them for running it and the European drivers for getting on with it. And we did, Luke and I, we spoke to Ben Barker after the race, and he said it was it was pretty bad. But um, they got through it. I think we only lost one marked car, and I don't yeah. know whether that was fog-related or not. But you know what? It's not meant to be easy. Yeah, I agree. And so I, as well, I hope they maintain that quarter past five start in February as well because – Obviously, it won't be the same, but at least it gives us some more night running, which will be which will be awesome. And um, yeah, I was gonna say yeah, credit where credits due for them running the uh, 
getting the event started and um, you know doing doing it soundly and for the drivers who drove to the conditions too that was uh, that was really really good. They managed it really well as well, like throughout that morning, rather than just sort of canning it, which I feel like would be the standard reaction of just red flag it, we'll come back in three hours. They didn't like they absolutely pushed to run that under green flag as much as possible. And I, I was shocked. I think everyone was. So like that was, was such a good effort. It was really, really well run. Pleasantly, I, ha- I had the IndyCar race up there on my phone ready to go. And then, uh, yeah, was rudely interrupted by the call to go green and um, yeah, almost dropped the phone. Well, we all, we all got up at 4.30 in the campsite. We were all standing around going, there's no way this is going to start. Probably something to share with this podcast as well is that I don't know if it's yours or Brock's that footage <clears throat> right up at McPhillamy on the fence with the cars coming around through the fog that's um for people who weren't there that that really sells what it was like for those drivers on those opening laps yeah that was that was a great spot to stand and and the one of the good things was with the extra night running because I mean basically we had an hour and a half but usually at the 12 hour the the biggest talking point when we get there on the Thursday or the Friday is trying to work out where we're going to watch the start from. And invariably we've watched usually from hell corner, but I've watched uh, 2014. I watched it from McPhillamy uh, 2017. I watched it from uh, Caltex chase and that, that was the year and it was, it was missed on the TV coverage, but uh, an Audi came out of the, out of the chase just in front of ridges and put a wheel on the curb and then did a 360. And I've never found anyone else who saw it, but I swear to swear blinder did a 360 and kept going on the first lap. But anyway, that aside, um, with the extra night running, it meant that we could watch the start down at Murray's and then hop in the car and after watching the first half hour and drive up to drive up to Reed Park, hop out, and then we saw a good half hour of night running and then saw the sunrise. Yeah, that was wicked, man. Like that, that's that's, so that, that's that's something you won't get to do in a in a February twelve hour anyway, because the the nighttime part of it where they usually start is is not long enough. I think like all races have a, a vibe or an atmosphere, but when we went up the top loop and we were standing just on the exit of Reed Park, I've just never experienced anything like that. It mm. was just. I don't know. It just had such a cool feeling to it. It was just such an such an interesting experience. I've never experienced anything like that. It just felt so unique. And when when we were standing there, I was just like, I'm really gonna soak this up because I don't think I'm ever gonna see anything like this with my own eyes again. Like just that fog with that darkness at that part of the track. Like I don't know. It's just it was so cool. I, I think there's many parts of this year's 12 hour that we're we're really lucky and glad we did, we went because it 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 won't you're never going to get that sort of weather in a February 12 hour it, it it really it really was awesome and maybe get in February maybe they can look at this doesn't work for a Channel 7 le- leading into the 6 p.m. news TV coverage but to start the race closer to 5 a.m. in summer to give it a bit longer dark you know what this year taught us we need we need some very carefully calibrated and calculated amounts of smoke and smoke machines 
set them up around the track and yeah, like forget Bernie's sprinklers. We need to get them fog. Because that makes it way cooler. <laughs> yeah, I, I was thinking that maybe as a compromise, if if we in February, if you can't do a night practice because it's too late, even just a dusk practice, even on Friday evening, like run them from six to seven or something, or um, you know, something a bit different. That's probably the closest you could get. Without, as Daniel said, putting the program back on the Friday, which I think is a really good idea. But if you didn't want to do that, if you could just run it a little bit later, it would give a different look to a bunch of photos anyway, if nothing else. One other thing I do want to mention, and I think this is just, again, full credit to the organisers and supercars, but once again, allowing the combined sedans as a sport category, that is very much a grassroots category. Uh, Those are some big dollar cars in it. They allow them back every year, full TV coverage. The category responds by coming up with 50 cars year in, year out. But I think it's really good they haven't turned their nose up at them and go, no, you know, we're going to run a supercar or an ARG sort of support category. So um, I just once again, I think that is a big credit for allowing that because it's the only chance those guys ever get to race at that track. And um, I think that category, the more they run as a support at that event, they have slowly become a part of that event. And I don't know about you guys, but I associate the sports sedans and the combined sedans very much with the 12-hour. And uh, I just wanted to acknowledge that as well as a bit of a tip of the hat. I think that's pretty cool. I do. I agree totally. I guess the only thing is um, we had improved production for many years, and that was considered a sort of a staple of the 12-hour support category too and they um they go they got rid of them a couple of years ago but the combined sedans were great and the the fact that so many of the cars in the combined sedans were sports sedans was i mean that that xe falcon that gray one how good was that that was the car of the meeting there's not much xe falcon under it though i promise you that (laughs) but um you know i don't know enough about the car as long as it didn't have a chev motor I think it may. I don't know. I'll, send, I'll find out. The good thing about combined sedans is they, you know, improved production cars can run in it. So oh, definitely, they, yeah. For both worlds, because you get IP, you get production, you get sports sedans, you get, oh, my God, you just get everything, X supercars. So, obviously, Jack LeBrock smoked everyone. Um, but, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. He, only, he only smoked them because um, Brad Shields had some trouble in the Fiat and the um, – Burrell set and uh, Lacey had some trouble with their Camaros. So yes, but uh, anyway, keep keep doing that. It's uh, it's it's very important. Uh, what do you think of the other two supports? I'm not sure about the 86s and the Aussie racing cars. I like the 86s. Yeah, I've always liked the 86s. I don't know. They're they're good. They sort of remind me of like the MGs back in the day. It's just there's more of them. Yeah. <laughs> What what uh, would be your dream three support categories at the twelve hour? I'd love to see um, Super Two run there. Um, I think that would be good. I think that would attract maybe a bit more of a crowd. Definitely the supercar crowd. If the Super Twos could run there, so I go Super Two combined sedans and probably get the Carrera Cups out there. What about you, Daniel? So I would go Formula Ford. Yeah. Sports Sedans Combined Touring, whatever you want to call it. 
and then historic group A, group C. I, I, I'm like you too. I'd keep the combined sedans. I'd bring back the, the Group S, historic production sports cars, which they had the last couple of years, mainly for the main reason that where they were set up in the paddock was right near our campsite. And um, at the end of it, they had a they always had a very nice little um, little store set up where you could get your get your golf Steve McQueen jackets and golf merchandise and everything. I'd uh, I'd bring them back just on that alone. But I thought that I thought they sort of those sort of cars suited the GT style event as well. And my third one, it'd be a toss up between I'll get improved production. Bring back a, I was toss up maybe Formula Ford, but improved production, I think. I, I really liked it when they were there. You saw some really um really cool cars that would uh that would turn out for that category. All right. Final question. Give me one change you you would make to the twelve hour. If you had the magic wand, you could do any one change, anything you want to it. Go on, Daniel. Daniel's got six. Like in terms of regulation or in terms of anything? Any anything. Anything. Oh, okay. you, you've you've been given the reins and you can make one change for next year's event onwards. Oh, because part of me wants to get rid of that weaving behind the safety car rule. That's strong motivation. But no, I think I'd double down on what I said before and do a Thursday evening session, night session, start start the uh, start the event Thursday afternoon. It's an easy one, man. It's a really easy one. 24 hours. You get to see them run at night time a bit then. I love that. Well, well we, we've all got a similar theme, and I, I'm I'm ripping my idea off Will Hagen, who mentions it during the um, the commentary of the inaugural Bathurst 12 Hour back in 1991. And I, I love this idea, and I've always thought it would be awesome if it was done. Totally wouldn't work for sort of the way they want to do TV to lead into the news, but... His suggestion, which I, I love the sound of, was that you start the race at midnight on the Saturday night and run it through to midday on the Sunday, obviously. But his his selling point was that you'd have you could have a big sort of carnival atmosphere leading up to the race start at midnight. You could you could gear it around, I suppose, ha- having your Ferris wheels and your things like that, and make it a real car. You know, you could have a you could even have a lead in two or three hour enduro or something on the Saturday night for something um, leading in. And, and that'd, that'd give us six hours or so of um, of nighttime driving. So it'd be a very much a half-half enduro. And then as a benefit of that, it'd mean you'd have to have night practice on the Friday or the Thursday because every driver then would do a stint, at least one stint in the race in the, um, in the dark. Nah. I've never seen a Ferris wheel at Bathurst. <laughs> no, it's, was it Malaysia 12 hour? They did something similar to that, Luke, and I didn't mind it. Yeah, I think I agree. I think you just run into some troubles commercially, but um, but yeah, no, I think the idea has merit. I, gu- I guess this is the most important question to finish on. Yeah, do you do, do you prefer the Sun Energy car, blue or orange? Yeah, orange with black wheels. <laughs> what about you, Daniel? Orange. Orange. Now, you know what he should do? He should do the the mirror. So one side's the orange, and the other side's the blue. That would be cool. 
I preferred it blue in all the photos I saw, and then I saw it roll around orange, and I'm like, no, nope, I prefer it orange. <laughs> Once I saw it in person, that was that sold me straight away. So that's about where we'll wrap up our Bathurst 12-hour chat. Thank you to Daniel and Brock for joining me, and thank you to Breakthrough Health and Wellness for their continued support of the podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode.